Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, session number 34. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome someone who has been around this industry far longer than me and someone who was really around from almost the very beginning. Michael Solomon is the CEO and co-founder of Circleback Lending, but Circleback Lending was not his first go-round in this industry, and we're going to delve into that in this podcast he certainly got uh, uh, some battle wounds, shall we say, from the early days. But I think, as you'll see in the in the show, that it's made his this venture at Circleback uh, a much more solid venture, and he's uh, he is starting to enjoy some success. So we'll we'll delve into that and uh, and much more in this episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's get started. I know you, your your background is a little bit different to uh, everybody else uh, that I speak to, insofar as uh, you know, you've been in this industry longer than I have. So, can you just explain explain a bit about your background, what you did before you discovered peer to peer lending, and then a little bit about you know what your first venture, what happened there, and what that was about? Sure. So, back in two thousand seven when I had seen Prosper and Lending Club emerge. I thought it was a really, really clever concept and I was intrigued by the model. And prior to that, or right around that time, I was both running a network of attorneys that provided legal and financial services through a host of different organizations, whether it was being the back office for behavioral health care consultants or you know, serving the bereaved families at funeral homes across North America with estate planning. And uh, at the same time, I, w- I was running a niche immigration practice that I had built that got all of its customers from online acquisition. And, and I became very interested in online acquisition and, you know, sort of the concept of lowering the playing field, lowering rates, providing better rates and, and quicker customer service was kind of something that I was used to from the days with my legal services operation. That's what that was all about. It was about this intermediation and lowering, you know, the cost of legal services. And I thought this was interesting and decided to put my uh, hat in the ring, so to speak. And I had built a few websites and had a lot of knowledge about marketing, but really never embarked on such an ambitious project, you know, like like that. And, And the company that was born, it was called Lonio. And uh, I spent the better part of two years spending all of the money that I had saved and leveraging my credit by hiring teams overseas that I then project managed here to build out all of the infrastructure and technology platform. And I guess it was in the year, it was in 2008, in the fall of 2008, finally launched the platform. And around the time that I launched was around the same time that the SEC had ruled against Prosper and, and decided to send them a cease and desist, as everybody knows, and as the history goes, because they did not agree that, uh, you know, selling loans to people, you know, with $25 a piece was, you know, essentially amounted to selling an unregistered security. So at that time, we, we had to go dark as well. And 
you know, proceeded to then figure out what we were going to do and, and actually drafted our own S1 registration statement, which was what the SEC was requiring. But because it was the year 2008 and because, you know, frankly, Lending Club and Prosper still hadn't proven their models out and were really spending tens of millions of dollars, it became a very tough environment to raise outside operating capital. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, through you know, subsequent amendments that we made with the SEC, I was forced to make a decision where either the next amendment would become our effective amendment, which meant we could start operating again, or I had to withdraw it. So because I was unable to raise more money and, and didn't want to do anything that would be, you know, grossly negligent and irresponsible, I, I had to withdraw the statement and, you know, move on to to uh, my other businesses and, and sort of put it on the shelf. Right. Right. So, and, and I think I just want to be clear here. I mean, you basically drafted that S1 by yourself, right? That was, you know, you're, a, you're a, obviously you're an attorney, so you're able to, uh, to use those skills to do that. I mean, so you weren't, you weren't hiring a law firm, right, to, to draft that S1? No, we didn't, you know, at the time. I mean, I really had, you know, I was really operating the company hand to mouth, you know, with all of my own capital. And we didn't have the money to go out and hire a white shoe firm. And right after I had launched the company, I had brought on a guy by the name of Todd Walters, who is now the COO of Circleback. And the two of us essentially locked ourselves in a room and, and more often than not spent many hours at Panera Bread and <laughs> the diner, a, a diner up in Rockland County, New York, you know, just drafting this crazy document and, you know, it, it certainly was a learning experience and it, it's kind of funny. At least I could put under my, my check boxes of, of accomplishments that I drafted an S1 registration statement and it, it almost became effective. But right, right. It was, it was a daunting task. I mean, you know, not only from just the disclosure side of it, but also the whole financial side of it, because even though our financials were light at the time, you still had to go through the financial review as well. And it was certainly a, a very good learning experience. And, you know, I think now if, if we had to do it again, obviously we, you know, it would be easier for us to do it, and because we understand the, the mechanics of right. of having to do, go through it. Right. Right. Okay. So you had unfortunate timing, really. I mean, you had not just the prosper cease and desist. You had, you know, the worst financial crisis in seventy five years, sort of unfolding as you're as you're going through all this. So it's it's interesting to me that. You know, you, you came back. So, I mean, you, you obviously, and this was 2008. You, uh, you know, when we, we first chatted, I think it was like 2011 when, when you were still, you know, lonio.com was still an operational website. So what you obviously took some time, like you, you obviously went and did other things. What happened in the interim? So after 2008, you know, you did your S1 and that was, I guess, 2009 by the time you got all that done. Then you decided to withdraw. Then, you know, what happened before you decided to go launch Circleback? Well, even after we withdrew the registration statement, I was still hopeful that, you know, I might raise more capital and things might turn around. But for quite a while, I'd field a lot of calls where people would say, oh, yeah, we want to give you money. And yeah, we want to do business. And they basically mostly never led anywhere. And I then got a call from a group about two and a half years ago, three years from, from now that it made a lot of money in online lead generation. And a lot of it was sort of in the near prime, you know, subprime space. And 
I guess they really saw the writing on the wall with the regulatory framework that we now find ourselves in. And they were looking to diversify and they said, hey, you know, would you be interested in getting back involved in this? And around the time that they were asking me was around the time when you finally started to see some movement, positive movement at Lending Club and Prosper in terms of, you know, signs of of growth and profitability being around the corner, you know, with the large groups coming in to start purchasing loans that really helped to drive their businesses forward. And I jumped at the opportunity to get back into it because I really felt, I almost felt like I was cheated in a way. Like, you know, I didn't really get a fair shake and Uh a fair chance Uh to be a part of it. Obviously, I took a lot of personal sacrifice and financial sacrifice because I, I had spent really and leveraged myself really as far as you possibly could. It was almost like a movie. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, I was given this chance to do it and I jumped at the opportunity and, you know, so far so good. I mean, we, we've come a long way, still have a long way to go, but I think that the environment and the, the economic climate is much better than it was the, the first time around. Oh, for obviously. sure, for sure. So, so what do you think now that you've, you know, you, you've, like, what did you learn? You, you obviously, this is your second rodeo, and uh, no one else in this industry has done this uh, for a second time. How has it helped to have done this once before? Well, I, I think that a lot of the times, and I'm sure you could appreciate this, you know, really being an insider, that a lot of the times when you have discussions with folks that don't really understand what's going on with these businesses, is that they they don't understand it. They don't understand really how sophisticated and complicated and complex the processes are, the regulatory frameworks are, you know, there, there's state and federal regulation. There's, you know, six different layers of regulatory agencies. There's, you know, the loan purchasers and, and, you know, balancing the mix of, you know, pricing and, and underwriting and portfolio management against, you know, the marketing needs and, you know, oftentimes these things conflict with each other and, and, you know, building out the technology and being able to responsibly scale, you know, in a way that makes sense and product develop, you know, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the question is, is this, you know, a, a financial institution or a financial company or a consumer finance company that's technology enabled, or is it a technology company that's doing consumer finance. And, you know, it, it really is at its core, first and foremost, the consumer finance company, because if you can't do those things properly the way that they need to be done, then it doesn't matter how good your technology is. Right. Right. So, yep. Yep. so, so it, it's, a, it's a little bit of everything, but I think, you know, at, you know, looking from the outside, it's easy to say, Oh, let's take a few million dollars, get a couple of guys with MBAs from Stanford, throw them in a garage and, you know, we'll, ha- we'll have a platform up and running and everything will be great. And, and in, you know, when people dig into it, and I've seen it, and I'm sure you've seen it too, a lot of folks coming and going, it, it's a lot more difficult than that. And, and I think, you know, a lot of what I learned when I was with Lonio has certainly been very helpful in building this new business and, and you know, making decisions properly and, and, you know, learning from mistakes that were made or at least understanding how to build a proper foundation to, to do this the right way instead of, you know, going off, you know, half cocked that, you know, right. I'm not suggesting people are doing that, but you know, well, I mean, probably 
actually yeah. went on. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there, I mean, I probably get an email, I get an email at least once a week, probably twice a week on average from new entrepreneurs who are, who are thinking it's, uh, you know, how hard could it be? You know, thinking about hiring a program in India to create yourself an online platform and away you go. But, you know, as Ron Suber likes to say, this is a lot harder than it looks. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I think if you don't have the risk, the underwriting piece down, and like, like a consumer finance, you know, I like what, the way you put that. It's really consumer finance is central. If you don't have the risk piece down, one, you won't be able to raise any money because no sophisticated investor is going to invest with you. And if you are able to raise, you know, some money from unsophisticated investors, you, uh, you're probably going to fail in the long term because you, if, you know, the, the, the underwriting is the number one piece. So I'm, I'm, I, I think that's great. So- and, you know, just to add to that, I mean, and it's more than just the underwriting, right? It's everything that surrounds that. It's compliance. Sure. It's having somebody yeah. that understands compliance. It's the regulatory framework. It's auditing. You know, every one of these little things, you're going out to institutions to put tens of millions of dollars on your platform. You better bet that they want all these things in place and they mm-hmm. want experienced people that know what, what they're doing because this is, it's not kids play and we're not making widgets here. You know, this is serious business. Right, right. Okay. So let's move, let's move more to the present day. You know, can you just explain to the listeners, you know, what Circleback does and how, how you're different to Lending Club and Prosper? Sure. So, you know, again, and I guess part of this was just from experience, you know, taking the experience and then leveraging it. And then also just where we were in the marketplace when we started Lonio, but sorry, when we started, you know, Lonio versus Circleback Lending, but because there had been such a movement away from retail and more, you know, the, the things that were driving the two other, what I like to call direct competitors, because I think anybody that makes a loan is a competitor, but if we're going to say direct competitors like Lending Club and Prosper, you know, we saw that there was a lot more institutional interest in, in coming to the platforms. And at the time when we decided to take on the role of building out this new platform from scratch, which we basically did, I didn't take anything from Monio we made a deliberate decision not to enter the retail marketplace because we felt that it would just be easier for us to go the institutional route. And it just seemed to make sense. And we wanted to, you know, that was one of the differentiators that we wanted to carve out. So we built the platform with the institutional investor in mind and decided we were only going to sell whole loans to institutions. And One of the other things that became a differentiator in addition to that was not only were we going to sell loans to institutions, but in the beginning, at least, we were not going to cater to the groups that were were geared up to, you know, do high frequency kind of cherry picking trading, as we like to call it. So what I mean by that is, you know, as as you know, and I, I don't know, it sounds like this is dying down a little bit on at least some of the other platforms, but there were, there was sort of this cottage industry of funds that popped up that all had their own underwriting teams and data analysts. And, you know, they would come into these other platforms and say, well, we, we figured out a better way to underwrite the underwriter. Right. So we found little pockets that we could exploit. And we think that we know that, you know, for simplistic terms that, people that have brown dogs are more likely to pay their loans right, back. So right. we're going to buy all the loans for, with people that have brown dogs, right? So, <laughs> and that works to some level at a, at, at a micro level, but, you know, you can't scale that way because, you know, even if you're lucky and you do find a pocket, 
once you start to scale, you have to expand the box that you're underwriting to, and it's just not possible to right. scale that way. But, but more importantly, as our chief credit officer, Alan Schiffers, like to point out, if you use the analogy of playing with a deck of cards, it's like playing with a deck of cards, but you don't know whether some of the cards have been removed, right? So if you have a 52, or there's 52 cards in the deck, I think, and if you have a deck of cards, and you're playing cards, but you don't know if the guys next to you removed half of the tens and, you know, three of the, the fours, it changes the probabilities and it right. changes your predictability. It changes cash flow predictability. It changes, you know, it makes the, the population of loans unstable because you don't know what everybody else is picking. Yeah, I just want to be clear about that. So basically when you sign up, when investors sign up for Circleback, they're, I mean, obviously they can... They can give you, I presume, some sort of criteria that they're interested in, or how does it actually work? Are you, I mean, obviously there's no cherry picking, as you said, but- Right, yeah. yeah. So right now the way it's working, Peter, is that everybody that is buying from us is buying platform-wide, and they've bought into our underwriting and pricing capabilities. And what will happen as we continue to grow is that we may- decide to let people, instead of cherry picking within each credit grade or segment, we may start to just sell certain segments. Right. So, that's you what know, I was getting for, at. Yeah. For, yeah. So for argument's sake, let's say we have A through H's now, right? So at some point we might say, okay, you could just buy the B's through the H's because we're going to sell all the A's to the people who really want only the high quality, low risk, you know, paper, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But now, because of the way that our business model was built and our inability to take whatever, you know, institutions might not want and sell it in the retail marketplace, because we don't have the retail component, it became necessary for us to build a model that required everybody to buy platform-wide. And, you know, obviously, all these different models present challenges. And one of the challenges that, you know, one of the thing, one of the hardest things that we had to do for the, for, for a period of about 12 months, you know, about a year and a half ago was send off and reject a lot of offers from funds that Mm -hmm. wanted to come in and cherry pick. And we could have very early on taken tens of millions of dollars from, from folks if we would have allowed that, but it, it didn't seem to make sense to us and wouldn't have worked very well with the, with the business model. And, and, you know, we held out. And, you know, we're kind of glad that we did because I think what, what you're seeing now is that, well, at least what we're seeing is that some of these groups that came to us and demanded that that's the only way they could work are now coming back and saying, hey, maybe you were right. Um, <laughs> now it's more about access. So we have to go out and sell access to our our limited partners and not the idea that we're going to get the extra 100 basis points because we're the smarter guys in the room. Right, right. So yep, it's been so- an interesting shift and I think we bet we, we bet right. I mean, it, it was a bet, but you know. Right. Yeah. So you launched in the, in the, like this, well, you, you started off in a, with a beta program in the summer of 2013. Got, I, I, I follow, I mean, there's articles on Lend Academy that uh, follow the, the evolution of, of Circleback. So then, uh, you know, you, you raised some equity, but the big deal, I mean, you, you were going along for a bit over a year and then you signed the, you know, you the $500 million commitment from, from Jeffries, which was obviously a huge game changer for you. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of what your loan volume was like up until September of last year and then what's happened since then? Sure. 
So prior to the announcement of the Jeffries deal, we had funded approximately four four and a half million dollars worth of loans during a twelve month beta test, mm-hmm. and that was from mostly friends and family, and one or two small funds. And after we announced the Jeffries deal, we really started the business. You know, once we were once we had the capital to deploy in October of last year. And to date, we've been growing nicely month over month. And I think we have about $71 million of, of loans originated to date. And this month, we should do 18 to $20 million. So we're growing at a nice growth rate. It feels good and comfortable. We haven't started to turn the dial up yet, but we're getting to the point where you know, we feel very confident that we could start to turn the dial up and really increase the volume. And if you look at the benchmarking of some of the other platforms and, and their origination growth, I, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to imagine that, you know, where we'll be in, you know, by the end of this year. And we, we fully expect to be at, you know, 75 to $100 million a month by the end of the year. Okay. That's, that's some rapid growth right there. So are you, are you looking for new investors now? Like as far as the, in the loans, are you, you know, Jeffrey's obviously have a, have a big and made a big commitment, but if someone listening to this says, you know, we want to investigate this you're you're taking on new investors. Well, yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, we're, I always like, we always want to talk to investors and we are having discussions with many institutions right now. And you know, I think one of the things that happened was is when we did the press release with Jeffries is that some people got the wrong impression that Jeffries was going to take the first 500 million of the entire platform. And that wasn't really the way that we intended the deal to be structured. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, while they, you know, the relationship has been great, they, you know, they understand the need for us to diversify our sources of capital and want us to diversify our sources of capital because it just makes sense for everybody involved. So we are talking to several institutions now. We expect we'll start onboarding those institutions over the next several months and continue to expand and and diversify the the platform as we grow. With that said, you know, we are looking for larger commitments and, you know, it just makes sense for us that from an efficiency and operating standpoint that, you know, in our opinion, it doesn't make sense to deal. I'd rather deal with 10 guys that are each giving us 10 to 20 million a month than a hundred guys that are each giving us 1 million a month. Right. 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 Yep. yep. So Fair. that, that's, that's sort of been the, the idea and, you know, it seems to be working well, but yeah, anybody that is interested, certainly always willing to talk and, and, and want to keep the dialogue going because things change on a, weekly basis. Right. Okay. So then let's switch over to the borrower side of the equation. Like, like, firstly, how many states are you open now for borrowers? So we are currently in 25 states and should be in another 20 states over the next 90 days. Okay. Wow. So you're, you're, you're really ramping that up. Okay. Yeah. So, and then what, what, what are the, you know, what's the sort of criteria? What's, is there, a, you have a minimum FICO? What's, what kind of borrowers are you attracting? Right. So right now, the type of loan product that we have is similar to what you're seeing on some of the other platforms. So it's a 36 month and 60 month installment loan. We are cut off for FICO right now is 660. We're using TransUnion and 
you know, the types of folks that we're seeing. I mean, we're certainly running up against people that you're seeing on that, that are getting loans on other platforms. And it really just depends upon the channel that, you know, that the borrowers are coming through. And the go-to-market strategy really was to go out with something that we knew was working and there seemed to have a nice runway. And as we scale and as we get our core competencies down, we'll start to go outside of that ring fence and start to expand and, and differentiate and really make changes that, that will be more distinctive. Okay. So are you talking about going down the credit spectrum with the changes or are you, are you talking about, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, <laughs> so it could be a little bit of everything, right? It's just the way in which we're underwriting now. At, you know, we're coming up on our first yearly vintage. And while that vintage was much smaller than the ones that started in October, when we have enough data to really, you know, take a look at things, we'll start to be able to make changes. We haven't really made changes to our credit policy yet, just because we haven't gathered enough data. So that'll give us opportunities to look at other credit segments. It'll give us opportunities to look at other addressable markets and determine whether or not we make more dramatic changes from where we started, which which was to to have more of a plain vanilla flavor. Um, I think that you know, we'll we'll certainly be looking at other asset classes as as others have and have a few in our minds. There are a couple of other ideas for features or benefits that we might want to add on to our uh, or at least test in our unsecured product that you're not seeing right now on the marketplace. And, you know, just to give you a sort of foreshadowing or a hint, you know, one or two of those things may have been a part of the Lonio days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you never know. But the exciting part is that there there is a lot of runway here and there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of people that are in the credit space and, and you know, different segments need different, have different needs. And I think ultimately it's about executing well and being able to, you know, be good at segmenting markets right. and understanding those various segments of the market. Right. How do you feel? I mean, you, you talk, you've talked several times, you mentioned that there's, you know, there's a lot of runway and you've scaled from a pretty low level to $20 million a month. You're talking about $100 million a month. How do you f- feel about borrow acquisition? Are you, do you feel you can still get, you can get economies of scale as you, as you grow? Are, are you, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm not, I know you're not going to give away any secrets, but, I just wanted to think about how I want to get some sense of how you think about borrower acquisition and the different channels and, and how much runway there is in each of these channels. Right. So, you know, look, clearly there's a lot more competition today than there was three, four years ago. So that's why I'd mentioned, I think that it becomes more, even more important to be able to execute your marketing plans well and being able to segment the marketplace and understand each of those market segments and give people what they want, right? And it all comes down to under, having a good understanding of the balance between origination, marketing, and credit. And, you know, what's the right mix and what's the right, what's the right pricing? And, you know, while many of the markets are very sensitive to price, it's not always all about price. And, you know, there are other value propositions that drive other types of borrowers. So it's, it's, it's about figuring all that out and doing it really well. I think that, you know, from a runway perspective, 
you know, by no means do, is any of this easy. I think that we've spent a long time, and obviously even from my Lonio days, in understanding how to acquire a customer and how to acquire a borrower and what moves a borrower. And I think that it's certainly not easy, but I think that we've figured out the formula to some extent, and that's half of the battle. You know, many people or many organizations have spent tens of millions of dollars figuring out the formula. And that was one of the benefits when we talked earlier today about, you know, what did I learn from Lonio? What did we do at Lonio? Well, I still like to talk about the third, fourth mover advantage because we, you know, we were able to do all that stuff and arguably, you know, take five months of real operations and, and, you know, move the needle much further than or to get to the point of $20 million that maybe it took some of the others, you know, several years to get to. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. So uh, can you, can you at least comment then is, is direct mail the, the major part of your, of your operation or is it online lead generation or are you just, um, you know, how's it, where, where's well, it fit? Yeah. So, well, what I can tell you is that the majority of our volume has come from online channels thus far. And, and as we grow, we recognize that direct mail will become a component of, of the marketing mix. Mm-hmm. And we'll start doing that. But, you know, like every other channel, it takes a lot of hard work and, and money and, and smarts and, and analysis and market segmentation in order to get it right. So, you know, we think that that, that, that you know, online, offline, all, all those channels play an important role in, in the overall customer acquisition. Right. Right. So what would you say then is, is your biggest challenge today? You've got, you've got a platform that's clearly no longer just a startup, but you're not ready to, you know, you're not at the scale of a Prosper or Lending Club. So what is, what is your big challenge to try and get up to the next level? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the way that we're marketing, you know, also having more capital and having the right, the right people on the team. And I think we've done a good job of building out a team and you know, in growing this business, the the first thing I had to understand, or at least I think that a good CEO has to understand is where do they not have strengths and, you know, where you have to bring people in that are smart and know, know what they're doing in all these various areas. And, you know, when we started this business, I really had no credit underwriting background. So the, the obvious thing to do was to first go out and find, you know, a chief credit officer and you know, along the way, bring in folks in respective areas that, that could really, you know, bring value to the organization as a whole. So we're now, now that we've, you know, really gotten things working well in our, with our loan analysts and our call center and, you know, the operations, and we're at about 55 heads to date. Now the next challenge is to start dialing up and, you know, stressing the system to see how scalable it is and, Along the way, you know, we expect that we'll have mistakes we'll make and, you know, things that we'll do. And if we're not, then we're probably not, we're not operating enough or doing things the right way because you have to do things the wrong way at some point. So, you know, the challenges really are just getting out there, scaling and and executing uh, the marketing properly so that we could better understand our, you know, the consumer segments and then also start to differentiate. So I think by the time we get to a hundred million dollars a month, we'll start changing our focus from customer acquisition and sales to branding and, you know, really what, who is, who is circle back and how are things unfolding? And one of the challenges will be, 
you know, as we get to forks in the road and as we decide, you know, what's our next move, what's our next product, where, you know, who are we, what are we, where are we going next? Those will be the challenges, right? You know, trying to make those decisions and sleeping at night to make sure we made the right decision. Of course, in the back of our minds that always have us fearful is fraud prevention, right? Because fraud is something that's always a moving target. And Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, if you get hit with with fraud, that could really create some serious damage to to the company. Right. Right. Okay. One last question before I let you go. You obviously have thought about this and you've, I'm sure you've given presentations about this, but where, where is Circleback? What's your vision for Circleback in the long term? Is, is, are you comfortable being a number three or four player here? Do you feel like one day you're going to be bigger than Lending Club? I mean, where, what is the vision for the long term? Right. So, you know, people ask that a lot. And I think that in the world of, consumer finance, where you have Bank of America coexisting with Chase and, you know, uh, Citigroup and and 6,000 credit unions, 6,000 community banks, and, you know, all these other players, we're happy to be in the third or fourth slot. And we don't wake up every morning thinking, well, how can we beat Lending Club or how can we beat Prosper? Or how can we be number one? I don't believe this is a zero-sum sort of network effect play for many reasons. You know, that, and you don't see that in the brick-and-mortar side of the equation either. So for us, I think the goal is to just build a sustainable organization, build a brand, build something recognizable, and build something we could be proud of. And, you know, when consumers think of us, we want them to think of, you know, good experiences. We want them to think of quick service reasonable rates, affordable rates. And, you know, that, that goes a long way. So we're, our, our goal is to obviously scale up to originations uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars and be somewhere that you see Lending Club and Prosper today. But I also like to say that if we got to that level and then never grew any more than that, I don't think any of my stakeholders would go home and, you know, be upset. I think they'd be quite happy, you know, achieving that level of success. So, you know, I still think we have a long way to go, but we're certainly on the right path. And I think we have a a good foundation and solid base to get there. And that's what makes it exciting and keeps me getting up every day and coming into the office and, you know, keep me going. Right, right. Well, on that note, I think we should uh, we should end it. But I, I, I certainly wish you all the best, Michael. I don't think anyone in this industry deserves uh, success more than you. You've you've really put in some hard yards over the years, and uh, great to see you're on your way again now. I appreciate it, Peter, and look forward to seeing you in a few weeks in uh, New York. Okay, at Lendit. Yes, indeed. Well, okay. Thanks for your time today, Michael. All right. Thank you. Okay. See ya. Yeah, Michael brings up an interesting question there at the end uh, as to you know, really how many online platforms can this industry sustain? Now, it's certainly not going to be a, a winner-take-all. I think we've established that now. But how many, how many platforms I think is going to be dependent upon how successful this industry is in attracting borrowers for the long term and how it, how it scales. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of people who believe, including myself, that 
we have got a lot, a lot of runway left and, and eventually we're going to keep doubling the size of this industry every year for many, many years to come. So if you think about that, then you think, well, you know, there could easily be five, 10, 15, potentially 20. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be thousands like there is in the banking, in the banking system, but certainly I, I could see, uh, you know, 15 to 20 successful platforms in the consumer lending space alone. And, you know, I think Circleback have a great shot at being, at being one of those companies that are successful in the long run. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.